Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. Thanks for joining us today. When people think of firefighters, they might imagine a picture from a child's book. A big man wearing lots of equipment, maybe pulling a hose from a red fire engine or rushing to rescue people from a burning building. But firefighters are responding to far fewer fires these days and many more medical calls. People call 911 for everything from chest pain to falls and drug overdoses, and all of these calls are routed to the local fire department. Minneapolis Fire Captain Jeremy Norton sees medical emergency calls as the heart of his work. He is in the studio with me this morning to talk about his new book. The title is Trauma Sponges, Dispatches from the Scarred Heart of emergency response. He writes about the pain and suffering he's witnessed over 22 years serving the city, including a call to the scene of George Floyd's murder in 2020. And he describes what happens when broken systems and racial injustice leave so many people with nowhere else to turn for help. Good morning, Jeremy. Nice to meet you. So great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, And a little bit more about Jeremy. He grew up in Washington, D.C., got his bachelor's degree in literature from Tufts University and a master's degree in creative writing from Boston University. Jeremy taught high school English in Chattanooga, Tennessee, before moving to Minneapolis and joining the fire department in 2000. And Jeremy, I'm holding the book. You're you're the author of a book now. Isn't that crazy? Is, I am so psyched. Yeah, are you? You should yeah. be proud. Congratulations. And first, I really do have to talk about the title, uh, Trauma Sponges. I admit it to you when you walked in this morning. When this landed on my desk here at NPR, there was a, a part of me that just didn't want to pick it up. I just didn't want to go there. So uh, with the word trauma written on the, on the cover, uh, why did you choose that title? Well, I... It's a reference to in the old old days, so 70s or before, um, before we had suction um, in the hospitals, they used actual sponges to went during surgeries. Like that was how they absorbed the blood while surgeons were operating. So a trauma sponge was a thing. Um, we've moved past that. There is now suction, thankfully. I didn't know that. Yeah. And so, I, it, it, so it is both literal and figurative in terms of the absorption of trauma. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, it's funny because in the first you know, a couple of pages. I say this is not trauma porn. Right? I don't want to like. I don't want to emphasize or sensationalize kind of the graphic nature of it. But the other part I insist on throughout the book is that this is a career for any emergency responder, police officer, paramedic, firefighter that is steeped in the suffering of others. Mm-hmm. It is an inescapable reality of our of our jobs. You're acknowledging it. Oh yeah, absolutely. That it's real. And have you received feedback uh, from people about? The title. Have people said asked you about that? Like, why did you choose that title? Um, some. And uh, I think initially at the U- University of Minnesota Press put the book out and they've been wonderful. But mm-hmm. because of kind of it was during COVID when they bought it, we weren't in the room. So it was all through individual mm-hmm. emails. So I wasn't there to kind of pitch myself to the entire team. So they were curious about it because they were like, this sounds lurid. And it's, you know, it isn't lurid. I'm trying to work against the luridness. But, um, and then other people get it right away. I've, mm-hmm. I've had people walk up and say, I absolutely get it. it, it the, the duality of it absolutely lands and they get it. And I, and I high five them because they make me feel. And the why, why did you want to write this book? Uh, you've had a long career. I'm sure you've got many stories to tell. I, I, I get it. But is it really about educating the public about what firefighters actually do? Because we only have an hour, I will try to keep this brief. <laughs> <laughs> um, from my very beginning days, and actually even before 
I was trying to make sense of what it is firefighter EMTs do. And then as I started and I kept waiting for and was mentally and emotionally preparing to go to fires, and that's what everything emphasized, we kept going, you know, we went on medical calls, which had received kind of short shrift in our training. You know, people would, you know, some of the, you know, the better captains would emphasize, you will see people having their hardest day. You'll go into rich homes, but primarily poor homes or people on the street. You, you know, the good captains emphasize, you need to respect people and understand that where they are isn't who you are and you need to see them and honor them. But then the more time that went on, not only have since the 70s fires decreased internationally and, and nationally and in Minneapolis, they've the fires have decreased every year, but our calls for service have increased because of the emergency services catching everything that falls through the safety net. Mm-hmm. And so as I try to explain to myself and then to my in-laws and family members what it is we do every day, I also started understanding that the sociology of our work is what does not get discussed enough. And I think that's kind of the Trojan horse, both for a lot of our, the trauma that fire or emergency responders and firefighters absorb, but also where the breakdowns and how we treat people occur. Do firefighters talk to each other? Do you talk to one another about the emotions you're feeling or, or processing what you've gone through? It varies. You know, it varies. Uh, the woman who got me interested in the job in the mid-90s when I first moved here, I asked her about that as I was kind of you know, chasing, not, not quite an ambulance chaser, but I was, mm-hmm. I was like, wow, that's so cool. And you're such a badass. And, you know, and I'm like, and, and, and she said, well, when I asked, what do you do with hard, all these hard calls? And she said, partially because every single day, most of our work is upsetting for on to somebody or on some level, mm-hmm. and then also back then there was much less awareness of kind of the unhealthiness of su- of stuffing everything down inside yourself, right? And so, you know, and so there wasn't there wasn't an easy way to say, okay, this was bad. Let's take five because because you never knew what was going to bother somebody. And I think we have consistently tried to get better in recognizing that's you know that the kind of stoicism isn't productive mm. to our listeners as i talk with a uh, book author and firefighter jeremy norton i want to hear from you too if you've worked as a first responder tell us why how do you handle uh, seeing other people's pain day after day and what helps you cope after witnessing so much trauma the phone lines are open you can call us at 651-227-6000 again the number is 651-227-6000 or you can call us at 800 800- 242-2828. And if you simply have questions for Jeremy or about his book, you can call us as well. Now, Jeremy, in the introduction, you talk about uh, the timing of writing the book. Um, you note that that we were in the early frightening stages of the COVID-19 pandemic. George Floyd was killed while you were working on the book. Uh, how did these major events uh, lead you to uh, either refocus or really, uh, you know, help you with writing what you wanted to say? Oh, that's a great question. I initially intended this book as a panorama of all the different types of calls we get. And so I had heart attacks, respiratory issues, car wrecks, shootings, stabbings. I mean, it was it was a litany of mayhem. And, and I was starting to formulate or understand kind of a cohesive idea of how the sociology, basically how race, class, and gender shapes who gets help, how they get helped and who does the helping and looking at all those interconnected pieces with COVID 
through through both our response and I'd say our kind of national uh, psychosis in terms mm-hmm. of denying reality and and going sideways on that. I wa- like that really clarified the ways in which you know communities of color were disproportionately affected for myriad reasons that responders who tended towards kind of a right-wing mindset were both claiming they were risking their lives, but also forsaking safety measures because we kind of believe that our, you know, our uniforms protect us. Um, And then, you know, with the, you know, as I write, the killing of, of Mr. Floyd was not my first death by police officer. And at that point, looking at not just the individual situations, but the lack of structural, meaning the police department, meaning the city of Minneapolis, meaning the state of Minnesota, that we accept these things as as uh, absolve, uh, dismissible almost as par for the course. And having been on the calls and seeing how things played out, I again saw all the pieces that shaped what end up being, you know, I think ghastly moral failures. And was the writing process, was it healing for you at all? <laughs> um, it, it was, it was something because on one, on one level I, I've been, especially in the rewriting, I've been living kind of fervently in kind of an imaginative state of, you know, of kind of plumbing and purge, you know, plumbing the depths of my memories and, 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 and then also trying to hold things up so that I can write about them and reshape them and understand them. So there was a way in which it's not just, I'm not just vomiting onto the page and I'm not just reopening an old wound and bleeding all over the place. But, you know, indubitably it's, it is hard to revisit things. But the bigger point is that for all of us who do this work, they're in there already, right? So we've experienced, I and my crews have experienced what we've seen, what we've, you know, what we've gone through. And so, there isn't any easy way to make them disappear. And so that's kind of, I don't know that, I don't know that healing's the right word, but it is some level is, it is, it has freed me up. Mm. And let's talk about the firefighting profession more broadly and, and how firefighting has changed since the 1970s. I, I think I, I read that there, there are actually fewer fires now in the U S yeah, that was correct. That's correct. And why is that? Um, well, I, I think one hand, thank your smoke detectors and your, mm-hmm. and your, you know, in your uh, public information mm-hmm. thing. And then a lot of homes got burned. You know, there was a lot of ar- kind of targeted arson in the 70s and 80s. So they're now either empty lot or expensive lofts uh, replacing them. But really, um, smoke detectors have done an amazing, amazing job stopping what, you know, a kitchen, a burnt pot in your kitchen will get you awake, you know, or, or get mm-hmm. you aware now, whereas before the whole side of the kitchen would be on fire. And, and so in the, Late 70s and early 80s, as these numbers changed, a lot of cities recognized that having a trained emergency response, um, uh, uh, de- uh, whatever it's called, department, I guess, um, spread around the city to respond quickly to emergencies. And, you know, and firefighters have always gone to car wrecks and building collapses and all those things. But then saying, let's broaden their training to, you know, from being just kind of a first responder generic training to actual emergency technicians or uh, paramedic level. And so that way we are helping, you know, we're responding, we're serving the public. We work with, in Minneapolis, we work primarily with either uh, Hennepin County medics or with North medics responding and keeping somebody alive until the medics get there. And then we support and act as, uh, 
kind of a, a support for them once they arrive. You've mentioned some, given the, some examples of calls that you all have responded to, but I imagine there are a lot of times people are surprised, like, why is there a fire engine pulling up? Like, so what are some of the typical calls that uh, a, a fire crew would respond to now? Well, one of the points I make is that our 911 system is predicated on emergency. Mm-hmm. It is a good Samaritan principle that someone calls with a life or death or in a, like an urgent call issue. The reality of it is there's no one else to call because 311 just sends you to a, either someone tells you to, uh, to call 911 or not. And, and so people call with questions, but the system is predicated on this is an emergency. So we will be sent for someone who thinks they smell something, who has a funny chest pain, who doesn't know what's going, like the, the range of calls and all of those sit on top of and kind of crush down on the very truly emergent calls. Mm-hmm. You know, and I do kind of, I distinguish in the book, the emergencies, you fall and break your arm. I did that. It, you did. And DC fire department showed up yep. on the sidewalk to help yep. me. And that's what we do. And and it's not life or death, but you are incapacitated and yes. you need help. Yeah. So sometimes it's just lifting somebody, often it is lifting somebody up, being calm, assessing them to make sure there's nothing that's not going to kill them immediately or that they're mm-hmm. not going to bleed out. Having a sense of humor to help make somebody's really bad day a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Uh, chest pain, cardiac arrest, respiratory failure, those acute emergencies, car wrecks, falling off a ladder, all that stuff. That is a, a, a portion of our work. And then there are the kind of chronic maladies, diabetes, COPD, emphysema, things that even if people are, are trying to monitor with their with their medications, generally they're unhealthy and it's a downward slide. And then the mm-hmm. third component is all the people who don't have re- regular medical care yes. and all the people who have to choose between, who have to choose between their, their health care or, f- or medications and food or housing. Mm-hmm. And so we see the emergency response, as I said, like police, fire and paramedics are responding to people who are basically fallen through our tattered safety net. And are these the you in the book you talk about chronic 911 calls uh and and frequent flyers is yes. that what you're describing? People who have you know there's the every single fire department in in the country and every paramedic service have their regulars in their area who call daily sometimes weekly and sometimes it's just loneliness and mental illness mm-hmm. sometimes it's just I don't feel good. Mm-hmm. And they get and the paramedics must bring them to the hospital. They're kind of ob- obligated to transport. Firefighters, we don't have handcuffs, paddy wagons, or ambulances, so we just use our <laughs> what little charm we have. Mm-hmm. But it makes it a lot easier to engage with people because we don't have the higher obligation. But that also, I think, allows us to take a more holistic look. I walk in, you've called because of a, a, that, a complaint that dispatch gave us as possible heart attack. Mm-hmm. It's clear you're just depressed. We will sit with you and talk with you because your chest hurts because you just got dumped, right? People do that. And they are, they are having trouble operating the world. They call 911 because they feel overwhelmed. This is not a medical emergency. You're not going to die from your heartbreak. You might die because you act on that heartbreak. But our job is to look at you, see you as a human being, and be of service. 
We're going to take some phone calls from listeners now, uh, Jeremy. If you're just joining us, I'm talking uh, with Minneapolis Fire Captain Jeremy Norton about his new book. The title is Trauma Sponges, Dispatches from the Scarred Heart of Emergency Response. And I want to hear from you. If you've worked as a first responder, tell us why. How do you handle seeing uh, other people's pain day after day? And what helps you cope with witnessing so much trauma? Join the conversation by calling us at 651-227-6000. Again, you can call 651-227-6000 or call 800-242-2828. Jeremy, we have a, a listener in St. Paul who's calling in. This is Gina on the phone. Good morning, Gina. Good morning. Hi. What did you want to share with us? Oh, I just wanted to, um, you know, agree. Um, I was a dispatcher in um, the Twin Cities for 10 years, and it just... Um, it's very overwhelming, um, and I had to leave um, just because of all of the um, just trauma, I guess, um, and having having to um, you know deal with these people through the crises they have. And I absolutely love my job, but there's just um, a lot of times there's really there's nothing in place, and and I don't know, maybe things have changed in the last two years, but there's really nothing in place for. For um, first responders, I feel, um, for them to feel comfortable in, in talking, um, other than amongst, you know, peer-to-peer, um, which is, an, is kind of frowned upon from my experience just because, um, you know, people don't want their employer to think they have mental health problems because they think they're going to get let go mm-hmm. or, you know. So I, 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 and then also, you know, I'm, worked with fire um, dispatch for the last probably five years of my career. And the, just the change in the calls, um, the increase in the calls, firefighters do so much more. Um, they, you know, do EMS and fire and whatever, like, like he was saying, whatever kind of doesn't really fall in um, a category. Um, and, it, you know, it could be anything from a, a actual emergency to somebody just having a bad day and needing, needing somebody to talk to. Gina, but it takes a toll. It takes a toll. Thank you so much for saying that. And thank you so much for doing the work. I mean, one of the things I say throughout the book is, you know, I just give shout outs to dispatchers. You know, I say you all are nearly clairvoyant. You know, They're and- taking the phone calls from the people. Yes, yes, yes. So the, so the 911 system, and it's a complicated system underneath City Hall um, because they are literally kind of playing computer phone tag. But one of the differences is we get to actually be out and see people, whereas the dispatchers, you know, they are they are talking people through doing CPR. They are, I mean, I had one call a couple of years ago where a woman exsanguinated herself, which means she pulled her, her um her uh, dialysis port out and she called 911 and the dispatcher was on the phone trying to say, you know, help is on the way, help is on the way. We rolled in and the woman had bled out in her bed and we, you know, we tried to revive her, but you know, once you lose your blood, you can't, CPR doesn't work on that. Mm -hmm. And afterwards I told my boss uh, who, who was partnered with the dispatcher. So I had an appreciation for how much they suffered. I said, make sure you talk to the dispatch supervisor and, and both give, give that dispatcher some support, but also make sure that that person, you know, has someone to talk to because I don't think people understand how how much the dispatchers take in and how um you know how little uh means they have to shed that 
And then they often don't have any follow up. They don't know what no, happens to these not. people. They just know that they sent someone to help. Um, in your book, uh, Jeremy, you write that the, the job of a firefighter includes a lot of trauma. And you write, there is no protecting emergency workers from the effects of daily immersion and other suffering. The job is, by definition, a traumatic experience. So what has been over the years the impact of you witnessing so much pain and suffering day after day? And how have you tried to manage the stress of the job? Because you have a life outside of work. I do. Um, and I think this goes back to your earlier question. In the in the three years now since, you know, through COVID and the uprising, I have both a, a clarity about the limits of our system and the failures of our society. But I also have I what I feel is, is a radical embrace of kind of a cyn- cynical compassion, right? So we go to people, you're going to be doing drugs. I, we don't judge you. I mean, I judge you quietly, but it's a bad choice, but I'm going to help you up. We will revive you and I might see you again two days later. You're going to keep drinking. I'm going to see the cirrhosis spreading. I'm going to suggest that you maybe don't drink as much, Mm -hmm. but we will help you out. You know, we will see people struggling and I don't take it personally. And the more I embrace just the entire human circus, the more I feel connected and the more I reach out and connect with people. The, the, literally the stronger I feel like I've, I've actually had more fun and more enjoyment at work, feeling connected to the community. Um, and I know others who have struggled since, you know, since the unrest and, and since the uprising and feeling that they, they feel a disconnect from the city and that because we are going to keep going on these calls, people are going to continue to have hard times and call nine one one. And if you don't embrace it, not just the mayhem and the adrenaline rush, but if you don't endra- embrace the people, they're going to win because it's a ceaseless, ceaseless grind. But I can understand why um, any type of emergency responder would become desensitized, maybe just so that they could function. But do you see that? And does that worry about worry you that 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 some firefighters simply become desensitized and and put such distance from themselves that they don't allow what they're seeing to tap too much into their humanity because then they wouldn't be able to function. Yes. I mean, I, I, I think I say in the book, you know, to throw out a little Greek, you know, it's the Sulean Charbatus of, of emergency response. On one hand, if you wall yourself up to protect yourself from empathy exhaustion, you start being unfeeling, right? And you start, you stop seeing individuals as individuals. And that's what leads to poor treatment of people it it's what leads to killing people because they ever you know people mistake or police officers mistake one person for the thing they think it is right and then if but the other hand if you if you care too much you're going to get you're going to break because we can't solve everyone's suffering it's a job where you show up you help and you go back and it you you don't have any closure I'm talking with Minneapolis Fire Captain Jeremy Norton about his new book, Trauma Sponges. I want to hear from you, too. We're taking your phone calls, uh, particularly if you've had some experience working as a first responder. First responder. Tell us why. Uh, How do you handle seeing other people's pain day after day? Call us at 651-227-6000 or at 800-242-2828. In Lionel Lakes, Brandon's on the phone. Good morning, Brandon. Thank you for calling in. And and what do you want to share with us? Yeah, so kind of on the point he was actually just touching on. So I'm retired EMS. I worked both uh, in-hospital and pre-hospital EMS. And I found especially pre-hospital EMS, there was this really macho ethos that actually told you if if you cared or, you know, if a difficult call kind of bothered you, 
you weren't cut out for this line of work. You just couldn't do it. Unless you were an uh, uh, emotionless robot, you just couldn't make it. And I, I always found that so unhealthy. And um, it, it just made it so even if supervisors said, yep, we're going to do a critical incident stress debrief, we're going to talk about how everyone's feeling, no one was willing to because that was the ethos we operated under. That So you you were discouraged from acknowledging that you were struggling emotionally with the job? Yep, and even even at a simple level. So it's not even like, you know, I can't take this anymore. This, this job has burnt me out. It's even just, you know what, that child just died and that's that's getting to me just for today you know it was even even it was like even the little ones you know no feeling no feeling you know if, if it gets to you you can't do the job you're not tough enough hmm. yeah brandon I, oh, i'm sorry go ahead oh you go ahead thank you brandon that's brandon and lino lakes uh and again uh, he talks about emergency medical services so what does that mean well, it could be uh, if he was in an ambulance service, he could he could have been a pre-hospital ambulance service, or uh-huh. could have been working as a tech. Okay. But Brand, um, but to Brandon's point, uh, and Andrew, you were asking me as before we got on, like I use a phrase at the beginning, compulsory machismo, mm-hmm. and you know I, you know I've had some feedback from. You know, some of my coworkers, generally kind of white men, who take umbrage or take offense that I say that uh, that the the clinging to an idea and an identity that was forged not out of kind of the God of fire showing up and saying only white men of Irish, Italian, or Scandinavian out here descent can do this job. But if a job where women weren't allowed to apply and the applications of men of color were, were yeeted into the trash or what the few who came on were run off the job. Not that long ago. No, 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 no. Not like, you know, Minneapolis did win having a 30 year federal injunction due to its intransigent bias. So I'm not making stuff up and I'm, I'm writing, I mean, and I am a straight white man. Like I'm not anything I'm not, but I'm also saying many, there are many really great men with whom I've worked who don't have my stubbornness maybe or my penchant for, for being oppositional, but they do treat everyone well. But there are a lot of people who, you know, and we see this in our culture and our larger culture, you know, you're trying to make us change. And it's like, it was never natural to have only white men on the job. It was a created environment. But so to Brandon's point, this ma- macho culture. Yeah, well, macho. He's but, talking about. but the if you don't putting up a wall is not actual actually being macho. Like you're not being a man. Like this idea of masculinity, and that's why I didn't use toxic masculinity in the book because I don't think I think it's a it's a problematic phrase because I think being a man is, you know. It's like what I think it was Nikki Giovanni said. Her ideal man is a cool head on top of a hot body, right? <laughs> that you want to be able to be grounded, calm, take everything with aplomb. Do not get ruffled. Have a sense of humor about yourself first and foremost and do right to others. And so a lot of the rigid patrolling of masculinity, I call out as, as a charade. And as, you know, as Brandon, our, our previous caller just said, and it's one that really hurts mostly the men, but it also, before it gets the men down, it causes harm to all the other people who are just trying to learn and do their jobs. You also write about the role of humor in a firehouse. House. You say that uh, firefighters joke and laugh to, quote, uh, dissipate the powerlessness that firefighters often feel. And um, I can see that. And, and but, but how can you talk about how, how humor can be a way of coping with despair and, and fear? 
Well, I mean, I think that's, I mean, you've right. been, a, you, you've been a reporter, you've, you know, you've seen police and fire and paramedics and you go on these horrible scenes right. and, and it, you know, and it's not just, we get this from the military, but in the military as well, where you were for, you're faced with scenes that are tragic and horrible and you have to keep going. And sometimes all you have is a gallows humor. Mm-hmm. And the problem becomes if you, if, if that becomes your only coping defense, then you can become really corrosive, very coarse and brusque. And then you can always try to treat people, you know, using that humor to keep everyone at bay. The other part of it is the the beauty of this job is we share so much and it's just three of us or four of us at our little station. Shout out to Station 17. Um, and, you know, and and you experience it together and you experience all the glory, all the wonder, three o'clock in the morning, driving back through a, you know, through a snowstorm, the way the lights spin out on the, you know, in the snow, you see this beauty and the majesty and you're the only ones up. And, and then you see these things and it's just the three of you or four of you and you're on the rig and it's a, it's a, it's a bonding and it's also a purging and it's also completely inappropriate by HR rules. <laughs> inappropriate, but yes. yes. Understandable. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's not, it's not for public consumption, but it's very, it's an in-group safety. Jeremy, let's take a phone call from uh, Marshall County. Chad is on the phone. Good morning, Chad. And what did you want to tell us? Hey, good morning. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, Just to give you an idea, uh, I've been a firefighter. I'm the assistant chief now uh, for 20 years and EMT for 12. And we have a crew of 13 or 18 firefighters and 13 EMRs and EMTs. And we service two townships up here. And that, to say that means that every medical or fire call we go to is a neighbor, a family member, a friend, uh, somebody that you know. And, you know, mm. there is no macho. You have to be able to ask for help if this is something that you need. And we've had suicides and things of people that we knew and neighbors and friends. And to call a counselor in for the group and spend Mm. some time with a counselor and not be too proud or macho to say, we got to get together as a group with somebody that can help us and talk us through the way you're feeling. And our resources Mm -hmm. up here, we have to raise our own funds to get the equipment we need. FEMA grants for us are kind of hard to get because we don't have as many structure fires as bigger communities. And, And, I mean, we would love a Lucas machine, because a lot of our responders are older and, you know, CPR during the day when nobody's around is tough for those guys. And T- Chad, tell me what a Lucas machine is. Chad, tell me what a Lucas machine is. I- it's a CPR device that's oh. automatic. You, you strap it onto them. It's got a plunger that does the compressions and time and, and speed is all there. And, and uh, I mean, it's just way more efficient and, and it does a better job than you can do as a person, even mm-hmm. well-trained, but they're $20,000. And it's like, you know, we'd have to serve a lot of spaghetti to be able to afford <laughs> right. something like that. And, you know, we're all volunteer service. None of us get paid. Right. So, you know, to try to raise that kind of money for something like that, it's like it would be great if they had a program where other agencies that are bigger are maybe upgrading or, or something and getting rid of one so that we could have one on our rig just for some of the older responders mm-hmm. on our crew that, you know, I mean, we're all farmers and we're all, you know, Articat, DigiKey workers, whatever. And, and during the day, we're limited to who can respond to these things, you know, mm-hmm. and, and our response time, Thief River is 15 minutes out from wherever they're getting called to our area. So it's like, we're the first ones there. We can be there in five minutes, but 
And it's hard to recruit people to volunteer that kind of time for training and things like that. So the rural communities right now are really hurting for volunteers. And it's what's the motivation to do it other than Mm -hmm. you want to help people, you know? Mm. Well, Chad, first of all, thank you for the work that you're doing. And uh, thank you for for highlighting uh, the particular challenges that firefighters are are dealing with in rural communities. And and what do you hear there, Jeremy? Yeah, no, thanks, Chad. I was down last night... uh, down in St. James, uh, did a reading and had a great conversation, but it's the same thing there. It's a small community. Everyone knows each other. And so, uh, and, you know, and I referenced, uh, Michael Perry, the, the great Wisconsin, uh, troubadour and writer, uh, who wrote population 485 about working and doing emergency response and firefighting in his small Wisconsin town where there is more of a connection where you actually do know the people and, you know, mm-hmm. in the, in a full-time job, we have the luxury of having a paycheck and, and being at work full-time. Um, and and if we work in the same area, it's not the same as it being your f- people you've grown up with. But we are, like, I, I've been at Station 17, South Minneapolis, since 2017, and I've worked South Minneapolis most of my career. I'm very familiar with the folks who we see and that gives a connection that that helps us be familiar and helps us kind of see the people more than just as 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 complaints but as the real people mm. and it's encouraging to hear i mean he says that that they embrace having counselors come in to, to help them yeah that's great so that that's a change yeah. a shift yeah. that we're seeing that that's good uh let's take another phone call from a listener uh in saint paul Ashley is on the phone. Good morning, Ashley. And what do you want to share with us as we talk about uh, firefighting and emergency responders? Hi, good morning. Um, You know, I was just thinking, um, you know, my team and I, we are not first first responders. We actually provide housing stabilization services. Um, But we can definitely relate to being sponges. And what I appreciate is hearing, obviously, we all know first responders have jobs that I could never imagine having, but being a case manager and working with people who are constantly in crisis is a really lonely job because we always think that nobody ever understands what we're doing. But when I hear Captain talking about, you know, you got to be tough, but not too tough. And you got to embrace the human circus, which is something that I'm going to start doing, um, saying to people, um, it, it makes us feel like we're not so alone. And also just reminds us of the times that we have to call for help for a client. And you're talking about these, these serial callers, right? And um, you referred to like somebody who's got cirrhosis to the liver. You know, we have these clients who we are trying to work with. But it's like every time they go, you know, quote unquote, missing, you find out that they're in the hospital again. And it can be so hard. And I love hearing Captain talk and I can't wait to read his book. And um, I plan on sharing it with with my my staff of case managers, because, you know, I always say just because you're feeling these big feelings doesn't mean you can't hang. It means you're human. Mm -hmm. And when you're feeling these scary feelings and when you're feeling like you're taking it home, that makes you a good case manager. It means that you actually are doing it because you know that it matters and the community needs you. So thank you. Thank you, Ashley. Um, is, is that part of the reason you wrote the book so that, that people in this this field of work uh, can, can feel seen and understood and maybe to start conversations? I, that's a great, that's, that's a good question. I did. Um, and, you know, I'm trying to honor and and kind of pay tribute and recognize all of us the work we do 
the things that we choose to do and the things we find ourselves in not knowing what we we're going or what was going on. And the other part of that is I really wanted to educate the public about what is actually happening, not just in the homes of their friends and neighbors and in the streets, but systemically, because the way that you think about the dispatcher we've had called the rural community, uh, the firefighter up there, mm-hmm. um, a case manager, what we're seeing is all the ways that our social, like this, our healthcare system is putting people in crisis and there really are no options but police, fire, and paramedics. And that's mm. and and that's a challenge. You we bring up police uh, in your book. You you talk about um, responding to calls that often involve police officers as well as other emergency medical responders. How have you seen uh, police officers interact with people, uh, and what concerns do you have about what you've seen at some of these scenes over the years? Well, I I think the best way of saying it without having to you know, risk libel or hurt feelings, um, you know, is I think the training for all the responders misses the key point that what we're called to is not always what we're going to find. And for any, for a police officer, for a firefighter, for a paramedic, if I, if we roll up on somebody who's right down there on, on ninth street, who's, you know, sleeping on the, you know, down on the curb and we start talking to them and they are not responsive or they don't respond coherently. They're telling us that something's going on, but we often take that as they're being noncompliant. And then a police mindset is often they need to control the situation. So that is kind of what has been, I've heard described as kind of the maximum restraint, like so that any, any challenge is considered a threat. And that leads to an unthinking and reflexive, Hey, I told you to do the sit down, right? So I have been on a fatality where a man was killed because he stood up and said, I'm a black man in my home. You were visitors here. I'm not going to sit down because you ordered me to. The officers took that as a threat, as a, as a control issue and started a physical, a physical altercation to make the man sit down. The man ended up dead because they broke his larynx, right? And it's horrible. And we, we showed up and we had to try to revive the man in front of his family. We had to then later test, you know, we had to, we're, the whole thing was avoidable, but it's a, it's a construct. And, you know, and that's one of the things that if people don't see, responders don't see that somebody has Alzheimer's, is having a mental break, is very high or drunk, is uh, disassociative, um, is diabetic, and we presume that their failure to comply is somehow a threat we are ignoring the basics of our job, which is to size up and see what is actually happening. I want to talk uh, a little bit more about um, the call that that you are a part of. You are a part of a call to respond to the scene of George Floyd's murder in 2020. And you devote a whole chapter to this in the book. Um, you were with the engine that was called to assist the EMS team who've been called uh, to the scene outside of Cup Foods. Um when you arrived, my understanding is George Floyd was already in an ambulance. And again, you devote a whole chapter to this, but um, can you share with our listeners just, you know, why you wanted to write about that in the book? Um, because you you describe it as this was a scene unlike any you'd ever encountered in your career. Right. And but that one of the uh, it, it is I am very mindful of talking about or being perceived as exploiting the death of Mr. Floyd. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also am very mindful that 
for a lot of people, it brings up unbelievable trauma, you know, predominantly um, people of color, right? And so I'm, it's a hard line to walk. But when I said it was unlike any scene I'd been on before, I'm putting it in the context that I've been on other killings by police officers. And the response at that point when they know they've killed somebody is there's there are multiple, you know, they have a hierarchy of investigators. They have ta- tape everywhere. Everything, the whole scene has been sealed off. What was so haunting and surreal about that day, May 25th of 2020, is no, none of the officers on scene that we, that we saw, that I engaged with, had any sense that there was a dead man a couple blocks away. They did not know that the man was dead. And so what was so eerie is that we did not know. And so I'm wandering through. You know, I talked to a couple of the officers who were unhelpful. I walk into the store looking around. And I heard from the bystanders, mm-hmm. the witnesses. But, you know, I've been on scenes where people yell out stuff. So, I, I again, we were able to multitask. I listen. I filter. But I didn't have a, I didn't have a patient, let alone a body. And, and because of breakdowns in the, the communication relay from paramedics to their dispatch to fire to us, fire dispatch to us, there was a delay. But the same thing for the two paramedics who showed up. They rolled in thinking this was a minor issue for a mouth bleed, which is what the call came in as. They got off their ambulance and walked up thinking that the police were holding someone down who was resisting. And from that moment... They had to basically, you know, you, you can watch if I don't recommend anyone watch the video, but they have to basically get uh, former officer Chauvin off of Mr. Floyd, the other two officers off of Mr. Floyd as they check his pulse and realize the man has no pulse. So a lot of the armchair quarterbacks and the internet experts who watch this have blamed the paramedics for not doing X, Y, or Z. You know, the, the point is that because the officers compressed him and, and, and suffocated him, he was dead. There was no reviving that sort of death by the time any of us arrived. And yet the paramedics did an amazing job trying to put together a response. And when we joined them, finally, we assisted and we did everything we could. And had I, had I been there, although as a white man, I, I would not have been in the same situation. But had that been me, I would have wanted those two paramedics working to revive me. How has your understanding of racial justice evolved during your 22 years as a firefighter? Because um, you write about race throughout the book. I do, I do. Um, well, I, it, it's funny because I say it's being in Chattanooga, which was kind of America on steroids. As a school teacher. <laughs> As a school teacher, yes. Um, and and, I, I, dedicate, and I, I dedicate the book to all the girls, which is both my, the women in my family, but all, the, all my – I'm someone who's been raised and supported by women, and, and, I, and I honor that. Um, but I also uh, dedicate it to my friend Hank, who – um, was a, a friend from co- I knew from college who was teaching and got me into Tennessee. And I watched him as a black man dealing with white America in when we were out in public. And then the kind of the con of moral suasion. If you just act like the perfect Negro, America says you will be treated well. And they've been saying that since the get go. And as a black man, he faced endless, endless slights, insults. And, and that, that opened up my understanding to how much the narrative American equality is a flaw. And I watched how much he tried to do the right thing and how much the white system refused him. And then, so then from reading and through self-education, I had a better context to understand what I was seeing. 
Jeremy, I want to try to get one more phone call in before our time is up. Uh, on hold in Welch, we have Joel on the line. And Joel, go ahead. What do you want to share or ask with us? Sure. Good morning, Jeremy. Uh, uh, felt inspired. I'm also uh, a firefighter with St. Paul. And i um, wondering if you could circle back and just, you know, a lot of the discussion was about the stressors, the traumas that uh, we face in our profession. Um, and I know you can uh, appreciate and know that most individuals try to put in close to 30 years uh, because of our pension system and just because of the changes uh, in our job and uh, the increased call volume sleep deprivation, do you feel like that is realistic to continue to ask people to to try to put in? Okay, that's Joel there uh, with St. Paul uh, Fire. I think we lost him. And is this a 30-year career still? I mean, a lot of people try to do it. Um, I think the, and and I know we're running out of time, so I'd like to, I'd like to close out unless you have some follow-ups. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. Um, I, I say in the book, and I and I believe this, that you know, police officers, paramedics, and firefighters join with their own disparate sense of what they're going to do. You know, law and order, advanced pre-hospital care, and fight fires. And what I say is that because of our healthcare system and because of our social, um, our social safety net, which is in tatters, um, what we end up doing is essentially being untrained social workers. We face head on all the crises that are shaping American society, the opioid crises, the unhoused and homeless crisis, mental illness, lack of medication, lack of access. That is our job. So people who think they're going to do one thing, right? And so that dissonance, I believe that dissonance is kind of at root of a lot of the, the, the mental strain that uh, we, we face, right? And, that the, and then this notion that we're heroes, or not heroes, but that we're supposed to be able to handle anything, right? So people come on and you have to you have to be this firefighter who's seen it all when you're brand new. Mm-hmm. And for me, I, I, I see most things as product of biology, gravity, and, and physics. So very few things are truly surprising, which makes me not feel upset by a lot of the calls I see. I do see the systemic roots, and that, that guts me. That's the hardest part. Um, I, I don't know if we are because it's a reactive service i don't know that we are actually doing what needs to be done on a structural administrative level to address healthcare and address all the you know address our own mental health and wellness and so it'll be i i will be long gone before we have an answer to that well, you've got uh, 22 years in. Um, our time is up for the hour, uh, Jeremy, but I, I want to let people know again, uh, Jeremy Norton, captain with the Minneapolis Fire Department, been with the department since 2000, the author of a new book about his experiences. It's called Trauma Sponges, Dispatches from the Sacred Heart of Emergency Response. Thank you for your time, Jeremy. Nice to meet you. Thank you so very much, Angel. This conversation was produced by Maya Backstrom. Be safe, everybody. We'll talk again tomorrow morning at 9. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.